0: Welcome to Off-Campus History. I'm your host, Lewis Reedwood. Today we're discussing Nitro, a 1992 Heritage Minute about Chinese workers on the Canadian Transcontinental Railroad in the 1880s. For those of you unfamiliar with Heritage Minutes, I'll go into more detail during the episode, but they're essentially a series of 60-second short films about Canadian history. They were initially launched in the 1990s and are educational dramatic reenactments rather than documentaries. My guest expert today is Melanie Ng, a PhD candidate in history at the University of Toronto, whose research focuses on clandestine Chinese migration to North America in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In our conversation today, we get into the history of Chinese migration, what aspects of Chinese-Canadian history this Heritage Minute reveals, and what aspects it obscures, and the genre of Heritage Minutes themselves. I learned a lot from Melanie in today's interview, and I think you're going to learn a lot from this conversation too. Let's get into it. All right. I'm very excited to have on the podcast a colleague of mine from the University of Toronto, Melanie Ng. Melanie, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: Hi. Thanks, Lewis. I'm glad you asked me to, to chat with you today. <laughs>
0: well, I'm, I'm glad you accepted. So you're a PhD candidate at the U of T like myself. Could you please introduce yourself to the listeners? Tell us a little bit about what your research is all about.
1: Sure. So I'm going, or I'm not going into my fourth year. I am in my fourth year now, <laughs>
0: which
1: is terrifying. Yeah. But, you know, other than being a PhD at U of T, I'm also a museum educator with the Royal Ontario Museum. So I'm very interested and in, into public history, which is why your podcast is of interest to me. And I think it's a really neat idea. Thanks. But in terms of, yeah, of course. It's such a such a good idea. <laughs> but in terms of what I study, I study what I term clandestine Chinese migration or paper migration to and through Canada and trans-Pacific spaces. And long story short, what clandestine migration is, is migration to and through Canada using strategies outside of what might typically be considered legitimate national law. And so when I when I'm looking at paper families. I look at how Chinese migrants are forced to find ways to move and live in societies that are actively seeking to exclude them. Mm-hmm. And I call this way of living, this way of strategizing movement, passing. And I'm looking at the consequences and effects of Chinese people's passing in my work.
0: That's a, a really fascinating research topic. I'm always interested to ask people why they picked the topic that they're focusing on. Could you tell the listeners a little bit about like what specifically interests you about these clandestine migration networks and things like that
1: yeah for sure so i think i'm one of the very lucky people who have a very personal connection to my work i guess well lucky and unlucky in some senses but i've always had an interest in the topic because you know at its core my topic is the history of my own family Mm -hmm. i'm a descendant in a family of paper migrants and immigrants but outside that very like personal connection that I have and interest in understanding my own family history, my own family story, you know, I I think it's really important to to look at the very personal, intimate aspects of uh, the human experience when it comes to racial and racist legislation. So that really interests me. But, you know, I guess the more academic answer I can give outside <laughs> my, my personal interests, the more, the more compsy answer, as it were, would be... Um, I think when we're when we're looking at immigration law and states and immigration legislation, there's a tendency to stay at the top to look mm. at what the state is doing. And I 100% think this is really important. We've got to call the state out when uh, when it's doing bad things. But I think when we look at people and families, like I do in my research, we're able to see a more capacious view about how the state's power actually functions on the individual level. And we see state power not just as a as a public overarching thing, but also something that goes very deeply into intimate, personal, private lives. And we get this kind of dichotomy of domestic and public that overlaps. And I just think that's really interesting to study.
0: Yeah, I think those are really interesting reasons. And, and I, I totally agree that I think that that makes a lot of sense. I have had conversations with my students this term about you know, we've looked at historical primary sources that are pieces of legislation and talked about, you know, there are a lot of benefits to looking at just sort of like the top level legislation, but there's also a lot of limitations about, you know, the ways that laws are enforced and how they're enacted on the ground and things like that, right? And so we sort of have to understand them in the context of which they were experienced by people, right?
1: Yeah, for sure. Things, things get really messy.
0: <laughs> yeah. So today we're talking about a heritage minute and we'll talk a little bit about heritage minutes more generally we're discussing the 1992 heritage minute nitro which i don't know about you i think i've saw this on tv a lot when i was a kid in the 90s oh yes <laughs> yeah and in general a lot of the heritage minutes i saw a lot on tv so i'll briefly explain what this is for people who haven't seen it and maybe don't even know what a heritage minute is but Honestly, it might be more worthwhile for you to go watch it because it is one minute long. I'll put the link in the description for the podcast. So Heritage Minutes are a Canadian specific sort of media property created by what is now called Historica Canada, which is a charitable organization in Canada that is dedicated to commemorating Canadian heritage, essentially. And... Heritage Minutes are a project they inaugurated in the early 1990s. And they're a series of short films that were typically shown essentially during like ad spaces on television. They were shown sometimes before movies and movie theaters. Apparently, I didn't know this until I was reading up on it before the podcast. There are actually radio Heritage Minutes, and now you can watch them online.
1: A lot of teachers show them in classrooms in public schools, yeah.
0: Yeah, a lot of teachers. And they initially started in 1991, and there were 50 of them released between 1991 and 1995. And then there was sort of a new series of them initiated in 2012 in the lead up to the 150th anniversary of Canadian Confederation in 2017, and there there have been some since. So there's there's sort of this this new batch of them as well. So if you if you haven't seen them since the 90s, there's a whole bunch of new ones. And it's a really interesting sort of catalog of what this pretty important organization thinks are like important stories about Canadian history, and they're they're intended to be educational. And so the one we're discussing today, which is called Nitro, is about Chinese railroad workers in the 1880s. And the, the essential s- sort of story of the Heritage Minute is we, we sort of pop into this scene in 1884. They're building the railway, the, the Canadian Transcontinental Railroad. And we have this situation where there's there are these sort of white overseers and Chinese workers on the railway. And the white overseer offers up for somebody to accept additional pay to do a really dangerous job. And he sort of frames this as like, oh, this is an opportunity for you to bring your wife to Canada. And so one of the workers... Accepts this, and the the job is essentially to like set a nitro charge in a tunnel, and it's clearly very dangerous. It does explode while he's setting it, which was very scary for me when I was a kid. By <laughs> the way, I remember that being very frightening because I don't think I saw the part that I don't remember seeing the part that came after actually, which is oh no, we, yeah, which is <laughs> um, the worker does survive the explosion, but uh, we then sort of cut to a scene many years later where he's an old man and he's talking to presumably his grandchildren. And he sort of says like, I survived that day, but many others did not. And they say that for every mile of the railroad, there was a, a Chinese man dead. So it's a heritage minute about a really sad story. So I think the key themes are at least that's to me. The key themes are the sort of race relations in terms of the, labor history of the railroad right we see chinese workers doing doing like the the manual labor and then we see these white supervisors directing them we see that the working conditions on the railroad for those workers were very dangerous and we see that the supervisors these white supervisors are very callous toward the chinese workers right when when the explosion goes off and they think he's died they don't seem that upset
1: it's like there's another
0: one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's almost, that's kind of what they say. Yeah. And the other theme we see is this desire to bring family to Canada, right? This worker is is willing to take on this dangerous job to try to pay for his wife to make it to Canada. That's sort of my summary of Heritage Minutes generally and and this particular Heritage Minute, which I think I should mention came out in nineteen ninety-two. It's probably just watch it, I would say. Yeah. I was thinking before this interview of what I had learned about this kind of topic growing up. And as a person not of Chinese descent myself, I think that basically the only Chinese Canadian history I learned revolved around the period and the themes focused on in this heritage minute, right? It's sort of the the late 19th and early 20th centuries focused on the building of the transcontinental railroad in Canada in the 1880s and Chinese workers being exploited, and then Shortly thereafter, the immigration restrictions the government of Canada placed on Chinese migrants, famously the the head tax mm-hmm. and then later the, the Chinese Immigration Act of 1923, which essentially excluded all Chinese migrants. So I feel like there's this sort of pocket of Chinese Canadian history that I learned about from like around the 1880s to the 1920s and very little before or after. So I wanted to ask you about this. What does centering this particular part of Chinese-Canadian history in our sort of national narrative reveal, and what does it obscure?
1: Yeah, that's such a good question, and it's it's one that I've thought of quite often. I am a public school teacher <laughs> as well, technically. And growing up, I I think like you, at least in schools, I always saw the textbook marginalia of... And the railroad and Chinese people, and that was kind of it mm-hmm. and and one of the reasons why I think thinking about this as as you're asking and thinking about why this particular moment in history for this particular group of Chinese people in this particular heritage minute, I think it's I think it's so interesting because I think it's indicative as to how maybe a more predominantly white Canadian population views Canadian history. And what I mean by that is that when, when I think we center Chinese-Canadian railway workers, explicitly looking at them as like exploited workers on a colonial nation-building expansionist project, we're very much presented with a very clear perspective that as subjects inside what we now call the Canadian nation, as the people who are supposed to feel part of the hour in, in that subtitle that always pops up on Heritage Minutes, a, a part of our history or a part of our heritage, Centering this, I think, tells us that we're supposed to see the railroad as a celebration, right? We're supposed to feel affection, pride, nationalism, and this idea that Canada, you know, expands from coast to coast connected by this railroad. And while on the surface, choosing to center and highlight Chinese workers on the CPR, the Canadian Pacific Railway portion of the line might appear inclusive and, you know, is certainly not unimportant. Uh, I think the message that this kind of centering produces is, is Im- implicitly dictating very narrow grounds for which non-white people um, might enter into this imagined community of nation, right? So, you know, as as we see in the minute, the worker by by working hard, by overcoming struggle, hardship, and, you know, the threat of being blown up by nitro, by taking part in this railroad, even though he's exploited the minute is kind of saying, well, you're still taking part in this massive nation building undertaking, right? So the nation is being very celebrated. And these are very liberal ideas, right? The narrative itself is colonial, and that's liberal, and it affords only the most narrow entrance into its criteria for belonging. So I think that what's centering this perspective in this particular way that the minute does is showing us that we are supposed to feel belonging into the nation. Now I think the second half of your question is is even more interesting to me. And and you know, please stop me if I go on too long.
0: No, no, no. Please go on.
1: I, I teach this in every single Canadian history class that I've ever taught, including in Chinese Canadian studies, which I was lucky enough to teach this past semester. But, you know, you asked what aspects of Chinese Canadian history does this obscure? Mm-hmm. And You know, in terms of what a minute can cover, it's only a very small sliver of Chinese Canadian history. It's only a year. It's only 1884. Of course. And, And in large part, it's because Heritage Minutes are 60 seconds and need to focus on just one bite in history with the goal of stimulating interest in the audience to read further. So I think it might be a little unfair of me to be like, well... This only talk about one year because I don't think that's a helpful critique. The history of Chinese people to and through Canada like starts in the 1700s and extends to our present. But I think what's interesting to think about is when we look within that minute that the the clip encompasses. So let's look within. It goes from 1884 and then jumps to, I think, 1934, right? One of the most outstanding, I think, obscurances. Is that a word? things that it obscures
0: we can make it a word
1: (laughs) yeah let's make up our own words but but one of the things that i take most issue with is that the minute seems to portray anti-chinese racism as a thing of the past and in fact they never actually mention the word racism now that i think about it Hmm. but it also stops short of explicitly referring to the many anti-chinese policies and laws like the ones you've already mentioned or including the ones you've already mentioned they they never explicitly say the head tax they never explicitly say the exclusion act At the time that this is happening and preceding 1884, there's hundreds of local, especially in B.C., policies and laws that are passed to discriminate and oppress Chinese peoples during, before and after the railroad is constructed. You know, just to talk really quickly about one of them, like to begin the whole idea of recruiting Chinese workers to build the railroad was extremely contentious. Many white workers were very vocally opposed to the idea based on, you know, what they thought was like this idea of yellow peril, aka the perceived threat of Chinese people so-called invading Canada and overtaking the quote-unquote white race. And one of the only reasons that Chinese people were recruited and allowed to immigrate in the numbers that they did during this time was out of a desire by white bosses, politicians, monopolists, people like Johnny MacDonald to ensure that the railroad would be built in time and under budget. And what that means is that what, what under budget means when I say under budget is that they, they, they recognized that they could exploit Chinese workers at lower wages and working conditions to get the project done faster. So while in the minute we do kind of get a hint at some of the dangerous conditions that they're working under, because there's no real comparison that we're able to see with other workers that did work on the line, and many white workers did, we're not able to see that, that, that nuance there. Again, it's only a minute, but I think it's worth mentioning. But the most, I think in my opinion, the most egregious part of the heritage minute doesn't lie in what they just didn't have time to talk about, but lies in what I feel at times is is a very conscious effort to portray racism in Canada as a thing of the past. So when I say this, I let let's go through the timeline of the minute, right, Louis? So the minute takes place in eighteen eighty-four. In 1885, the railroad is completed. It's the very same year that the government of Canada passes, I think it's called an act to restrict and regulate Chinese immigration to Canada, aka the Chinese Immigration Act 1885. Of course, this act imposes the head tax, starts with $50, eventually increases to $500.
0: Right. Maybe we should explain what the head tax is, I guess, for people who may not know.
1: That's a good point. So basically what a head tax is, is an amount of money that you are forced to pay in order to enter a country. And in the case of the Chinese head tax in Canada, for every Chinese person who wanted to enter Canada, there were some exceptions, but the majority of working class Chinese people who wanted to enter, they were forced to pay a sum of money in order to gain entry. For no other reason other than the fact that they were Chinese. And in no other point in Canadian history was any other immigrant group forced to pay such a tax based on their country of origins. And where does this money go? Well, it goes directly into government coffers, the government splits the money between the federal government, I guess, and the provincial government that's collecting the tax at the port of entry. So in the case of Canada, this is often British Columbia because most Chinese migrants are coming through the Pacific. So this is what a head tax is. It doesn't matter who you are doesn't matter where you're from actually, if you are determined by the Canadian government and by immigration officials on the ground who have enormous amount of discretionary power, if they say you are Chinese, you have to pay the head tax. And in exchange for paying the head tax, you get to enter Canada, sort of, and you're given a head tax certificate. And for for all the Canadians out there, especially Canadians who, you know, went up through the public school system, we're all probably familiar with that certificate. Mm-hmm. And it has the photo of the immigrant on it. So that's where the head tax certificate is. And that's what the head tax is. Right. But yeah, so that's the head tax. But like I said, there was lots of other racist legislation passed during this time. In the time that the minute takes place from 1884 to, I think they said, 50 years later? it's not just in law, but in society as well, that anti-Chinese racism is happening. And again, I think this is worth pointing out because often when we think about racism in Canada and within the span of the minute, it seems to it seems to be portrayed as just, you know, as, as a bar from entry, but it continues throughout the country and throughout Chinese people's lives in the country. So, you know, not just in law, but racism in Canada is actually quite violent as well. So in 1887, within the window of the minute, there was several race riots in British Columbia where white workers run through Chinese worker camps, businesses, and homes and set them on fire. In 1887, a Chinese lumber camp was raided in the middle of the night, torched, and a lot of the workers were run off the cliff into Burrard's Inlet. So it's not just law that we're talking about. It's on the ground, physical violence as well. But let's go back to that timeline I'm talking about because I I've digressed a little bit, I guess. So uh, the plot of the minute begins to end when the man emerges, the Chinese worker emerges from the cave. He's still alive. And you're like, oh, my gosh, thank goodness. <laughs> We're on the protagonist side here. And then the minute comes to an end 50 years later with the grandfather or the older version of the Chinese worker. The year is 1934. He's telling his grandkids, you know, I did this. I overcame this. One Chinese died for every mile of track. But in this moment, in this talking with his grandchildren, you know, we assume that because the grandchildren are there, his wife was able to come over. He was able to establish, you know, a family. Some workers were able to do that, but actually most were not because the head tax amounts to eventually $500. That's more than a year's salary for a Chinese person. Mm -hmm. The house he's sitting in, his clothing, it's very middle class, very comfortable. He, he He's maybe not wealthy, but he's definitely, you know, not not struggling as much anymore. And again, for most workers, this isn't the case because of the cycle of indebtedness that that head tax and the nature of a lot of labor contracts, you know, puts Chinese workers in. But the most, the most outstanding thing to me in this timeline in 1934 is that, The Chinese Exclusion Act is still going on at this time. So Lewis, earlier you mentioned the Chinese Immigration Act, aka the Chinese Exclusion Act, is passed in 1923. That act says no Chinese person is allowed to enter the country, amongst other things, but that's the major thing it says. And so This act is not actually repealed until 1947, until after the Second World War. So in the Heritage Minute, while they don't explicitly say, you know, everything is fine now, we've triumphed, we've overcome, they completely ignore the fact that one of the most harsh immigration laws, we could argue harsher than the initial 1885 law that enacted the head tax, it's still going on. And I think, you know, this is maybe... You know, I wasn't there when the minute was written, so I can't say it was purposely obscured, but it, it, it certainly is overlooked by the minute. And maybe this has to do with the fact that the earlier heritage minutes are very nation-focused. Mm-hmm. But I, I think for me, this is, uh, <laughs> this is one of the major oversights. And, you know, again, not to mention the fact that the railroad itself, while it's exploiting Chinese workers, expanding across the country at the same time it's dispossessing indigenous people's lands and sovereignty as it's being built.
0: Those are a lot of good points. You mentioned that the older heritage minutes in particular really like center the nation in particular. And I think that Mm -hmm. that is perhaps what's going on here and, and particularly the interest in the railway as their sort of way to focus on Chinese Canadian History, because the railway is such an important symbol in Canadian history of nation building, national unity, and stuff like that, right? And so, it's a way to, on the one hand, sort of I guess include Chinese Canadian history in the sort of national narrative. On the other hand, this Heritage Minute is obviously about the Chinese experience in Canada, but like it's also, in some ways, not focusing on on some elements of that, right? As as you sort of highlighted, and I think that in general a lot of the way that we or at least that i learned growing up about chinese canadian history is in this way right it's sort of it's sort of saying something about canada and particularly like white canadians Mm -hmm. often more so than it is about chinese canadians right And, and particularly i think the the emphasis on the railroad and then these racist pieces of immigration legislation are intended to show something about the limits of Canadian like well first of all it's about Canadian racism but it's also about like the limits of Canada's sort of self-image as like a nation of immigrants yeah and those are important lessons but they also i think are are obscuring aspects of Chinese Canadian history right do you agree with that and and if so how else could we frame that history i guess
1: yeah for sure that's that's another <laughs> really good question. I think and and I think I did say this earlier i I do think it is important to still focus on the racism on the line, of course, the, yeah the railroad yeah, the railroad line the 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 laws <laughs> the the grievances that many Chinese people, including myself, have with Canadian myth making and 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 the nation state. But I also think as I look at in my research and and what I think you're getting at with your question is I think migrants and workers' experiences are inseparable from the racism of the state. Yes. And, and, you know, holding the state accountable, pointing out that the law is unjust and racist, is integral to understanding the decisions, actions, and relationships that Chinese people have with life in Canada. So you can't have one without the other, in my view. Mm -hmm. But I think then to push further, going from here, Uh, when we do view these stories in conjunction, the law, the top-down history, along with histories of migrants, actual experiences of Chinese peoples, understanding Chinese people's experience in Canada on its own terms, outside of an assumed kind of desire to be included into Canadian-ness, Canadian nationhood, and, and Canadian citizenship. I think that's when we get you know, the more holistic picture. And that's what I do with, or that's what I try and do with my own research. where We're able to learn more about how power functions, how power affects people's individual lives. Like I said earlier, not just in the public sphere, but in the intimate domestic spheres as well. You know, people are agents of change. They're more than their suffering. They're more than their oppression. They respond to power. They resist power. And more than pawns to be moved around. And each individual, you know, not to sound super uh, kind of corny about it, but I, I do believe that individuals each have their own story and humanity. And and I think that in itself is worth is worth studying. So, yeah, I, I, I do wish that there was more kind of focus on Chinese people themselves. And, and I think it's important to, especially, you know, now that we've come further in scholarship, think about how nowadays... We can think about not just Chinese Canadian history, but Chinese in Canada, Chinese and Canada history, immigration history that is free from the bounds of an assumed desire for inclusion. And think more critically about, well, what are we maybe seeking inclusion into, critiquing the nation itself, and then looking at non-Canadians on their own terms?
0: Yeah, that brings to mind another one of the questions I wanted to ask you about which is that when I was learning about this topic growing up, it was never really explained why Chinese migrants would want to come to Canada. And I think there was just sort of like an assumed, it just, it felt like kind of like an Like who assumed, wouldn't want to? Exactly. Like <laughs> yeah. It's sort of like, oh, Canada's like a great place to be. And it, all these other immigrants from all these other places in the world are coming here around this time. and seemed to like it i don't know <laughs> so why wouldn't they but it was never really explained so maybe you could provide a little bit of context here why did chinese migrants want to come to canada and the united states especially you know given that their pay was crummy that they were poorly treated you know un- yeah. unsafe work conditions i mean i realized that a lot of this was probably not well communicated before departing but what were the conditions in China-like that encouraged people to come to North America?
1: Yeah, for sure. Another great question. So I I guess to begin, I think it's useful to, to view, you know, as we're talking about getting away from the, the confines of the nation state when we're talking about this, it's useful to start thinking about this question from the perspective that Chinese migration in the 19th century, you know, during those ages of railroad building in Canada and the U.S., is not, you know, just a, I guess, two-way, just China, North America phenomenon. It's part of a much greater, much longer kind of tradition phenomena of Chinese migration abroad, outside, uh, leaving China due to conditions at home. So Chinese people have been leaving their, home, their homes, their localities to work elsewhere for hundreds of years. So actually, when we think about Canada and the U.S. and Chinese migration there—it's—it's it, it's not, you know, exceptional by any metric. I guess is what I'm saying. Now, now, why did they leave? Well, <laughs> conditions in in China in the mid kind of 19th century are are not great. And when I say this, I, I want to be very specific to, you know, the framing of the heritage minute because here I think specificity is is quite important. So when we're talking about Chinese migration to North America during this time. Uh, we're not talking about Chinese migration from all over China, right? We're actually talking about a very specific group of people coming from a very specific region. That is what's known as the Pearl River Delta of Guangdong province in China. So that the very southern coastal area, Um, most people, most migrants are coming from, I think it's four counties. It's called the uh, Sayup counties. Say means four in Cantonese. And, and, And in this time, in this region, China's population has doubled. (laughs) There's lots of overcrowding. This overcrowding leads to shortages of of land, of food to feed. I think, apologies if I get the number wrong, but I think there's something like 420 million people Mm. in China at this point. Um, So poverty and starvation and and death, they're, they're everyday occurrences, especially in Guangdong the area where immigrants are the majority of immigrants, not just to Canada and the US, but places like Australia and New Zealand are coming from. Mm. So there's that in between, and this is really going back to lecture notes, but I think <laughs> in between the years of 1852 and like 1908, to focus even more on this region of the Pearl River Delta, in between those years, that region is devastated by a series of natural disasters i think there's something like 14 floods 7 typhoons wow. uh, four earthquakes oh, two wow. two droughts four plagues and five famines are all happening during that time span yikes and 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 compounding these natural disasters which which further makes life difficult especially for the poorest of people, peasants are having to pay high taxes, there's crippling debt, uh, high interest rates. This results in instability and banditry and peasant rebellions in the region. You know, I, you know as you study the U.S. And, and and a lot of Chinese immigration to the U.S., there, there's a lot more in the 1840s, more, more so than in Canada. Right. But the first opium war is going on in 1839 to 1842. There's the Hakka-led, uh, there's the Taiping Rebellion. 1850 to 1860 something so things are getting very desperate we've got you know the natural disasters political instability fighting in between localities and regions and and during this time there's rumors of gold abroad right so people are not disconnected from one another mail exists Uh, you know the steamship exists technology exists that's connecting people who have already gone abroad Mm -hmm. so there's this poverty and desperation back home, there's rumors of gold abroad, not just literal gold in the forms of gold rushes, but gold in the forms of, you know, the promise of a new life, the promise of earning more money. And however meager those wages are in Canada and the US, it's still more than you'd be making at home in the village. And then let's add this to changing global labor circumstances. There is changing laws in the trade of enslaved peoples within the british spanish danish and portuguese empires enslaved african labor the laws regarding that are changing and so there's a, a lot more pull more demand from imperial powers for chinese indentured labor or contracted chinese labor so all this is going on both push and pull factors that are that are spurring this mass migration of chinese people to Canada and the U.S. and and other settler nations abroad.
0: That's very helpful. And I think helpful for us to think about that the conditions here are not specific to Canada, even though often the way we learn about this story Mm -hmm. is, you know, in the context of this sort of like Canadian national story, at least at the school level and in this heritage minute and things like that, even though this is happening, as you mentioned, Chinese migration to the United States, to Australia, to New Zealand, to all these other places, right? And I was thinking about this when watching this Heritage Minute, and even though this is a Heritage Minute about Canada specifically, you know, if you took out the sort of labeling, like the subtitles that say, like, where and when it's happening, mm-hmm. the the story, you could easily imagine this story happening in the United States, even if, you know, the periodization would be slightly different, right? But, you know, if the accents were different, I think similar yeah. stories <laughs> elsewhere in, like, Australia and things like that, right? So... What do you think is significant about the fact that this narrative is similar in different countries but is not framed as a transnational narrative typically? It's typically framed as a like Canada story or something like that. The stories are similar between these different countries but are told as national stories.
1: I think, you know what, it might be just as simple as the effect of the discipline of history and how we tend to study history in a lot of spaces. You know, historians who spend all day thinking about this thing in in a very jargony way would say, you know, this is a product of limiting our analysis to the container of the nation state. And what that means is the reason why stories like Chinese people working on the CPR are told in the way that they are is because The discipline of history, the way that it has been practiced for a good chunk of time, I should say, until maybe the 1990s. And you know what? I'd even say into the early 2000s, tends to be studied within geographic boundaries. Now, that in in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. But, you know, if you think about it, if you're trying to learn more about Chinese immigration and only... Understand and and only looking to within the borders of what we now call the Canadian nation to understand the history of Chinese and Canada or Chinese in Canada, what we realized is that we we, we cut out a lot of phenomena, events, relationships, networks that actually happen. Before, during, and and after Chinese people actually arrive in Canada. Yeah. So you know that that's what I mean by you know the container of the nation state and the limitations of analysis there. Now, now, why is this significant? Why is it significant that we see still to this day quite often, although less so in other scholarly circles, this this national story? Maybe it has to do with the fact that that history as a discipline and I'm going to trade carefully here because I I study history and I love history, (laughs) Uh, but but maybe it has to do with the fact that history is a discipline is very conservative. And when we interrogate the origins of historical knowledge production itself, we can see, and I think to go back to comms, good old scholar Benedict Anderson would say, (laughs) history is a tool of the nation state to reaffirm the nation state, right? What that means for a less obsessed, non-pretentious audience uh, is that the discipline, the creation of stories of history is, is not objectively conceived of. It is deliberately thought of not just in the stories we tell, but in the way we practice and do history to create this sort of a narrative where everyone who falls within say, a nation state like Canada can feel some sort of belonging to. Mm-hmm. And, and I think maybe that's why for so long there is, you know, such a focus on national histories. Now, I'm not saying national histories are not useful or bad in and of itself. Again, they, they certainly have their use. But, you know, if, if we're thinking about, well, why do we only do this? And it's only recently that historians have been thinking beyond that. I, I think in large part that might be... That might be the reason there. Either that, or I don't know, maybe nations, maybe there's an investment by predominantly white settler nations to, to try and mask the fact nowadays that uh, anti Chinese immigration laws, actually, I'll even expand that. Racist immigration laws that maybe aren't just limited to Chinese people are, are more global than individual nations would like to think. There's a great book written by is it Marilyn Lake and Henry Reynolds that talks about drawing the global color line.
0: <laughs> yeah, I read that one for Combs Yeah. Yeah,
1: right. <laughs> and 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 how white settler nations globally actually conceive of racial legislation together. They're all talking about it and, and strategizing. But that's my best guess. That's a very that's a very good question.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. I think, but I think your answer is a good one. I think that that does make a lot of sense. And I was thinking back to something that you said earlier about this is a way of talking about people within the within the nation state and and sort of in a way including them in its story Mm -hmm. right And, and I was thinking about this and I think this is the way a lot of particular ethnic or racial communities histories are told in the sort of national narrative is they sort of they have like an origin story period, right? Where yes. <laughs> where where per, a particular group will be a focus for you know this is this is sort of like how they became a member of the national community, right? And and they'll sort of get a feature almost in the national narrative for yeah. like a particular period, but then after that period, not really a major focus. Which is in the context of Chinese Canadian history, for example, Chinese Canadians now make up a a really important part of like Canada's demographics, right? It's a very, very large community in Canada. It's kind of strange actually that, you know, if you, unless you sort of focus on it specifically as as a study, like, I I mean, I I learned basically nothing about it, that community from the 1920s onward. Right. But I think it's this sort of way of like communities sort of like pop up and then they popped out as they're, you know?
1: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, for sure. And I think in, to, to go back to something I said earlier, I think I think that's a, a product of oh again, let's go back to comms, a product of pushes by the federal government and policymakers to to create this image of Canada as a multicultural nation. Mm-hmm. Right. And and when I say multicultural, I don't mean like the phenomena of multiple cultures being in one nation, but you know, a national policy of multiculturalism where we're supposed to think of Canada as a place that is respectful, equitable, and inclusive of many cultures. And I think when we have uh, histories of different ethnic groups being told in a way that, I I, I think, I really like the way you said it, when they pop up, they have an origin story, they pop up and they kind of disappear. I think the effect that has is, I think it's supposed to be pushing this narrative that you know non-white people, oh, you can find inclusion. In this one very small liberal way. And then because they disappear, there's like this assumption that, you know, the pinnacle of inclusion into a nation is then assimilation into the nation. Mm. You know what I mean? So everyone says, you know, America's the melting pot and Canada's the mosaic. But I think it's more complicated than that binary there. Because if we only show immigrant groups as static and, you know, actually quite homogenous then we don't have to deal with the ongoing inequalities that exist in our present that have historical systemic roots in the past.
0: Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think that ties in with a point you made earlier that I was thinking about where, you know, at the end of this heritage minute, the railroad worker he's kind of made it yeah a little bit right like i mean he's not you know he's not like fabulously wealthy presumably he's but wearing like,
1: a suit <laughs> he has, he's got a suit
0: he's got but but he's sort of achieved whatever the canadian version of the american dream is right yes, where like yeah he, he did manage to bring his family over mm-hmm. he seems to have some wealth and stability and that sort of thing and it seems to me that in heritage minutes On the one hand, they're trying to show that things were bad. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, they want this, at least this one, to have a happy ending, right? Yeah. (laughs) And and so they don't want to show the railroad worker exploding. Yeah. (laughs) Dying in in an accident. Or they don't Uh want to show the workers who survived, but then, like, couldn't bring their families over, right? Mm -hmm. And it's one of those things where, like, I think perhaps historic canada considered that at the time I'm, I'm not sure i'm not sure what the reasoning is but maybe like too heavy for their genre in the 1990s i wonder i i haven't watched enough of the recent ones to compare but i wonder they're, if there's they're
1: they're, they're much better <laughs> i have
0: <laughs> okay okay i was going to say i wonder if there's a difference so
1: yeah there there there's uh, absolutely a difference and I, you know i think that's i think that's one of the good things about the newer heritage minutes that What we what we see in them. So I think there's there was three that was released in 2022. There's Heritage Minute on Tom Longboat on Mm -hmm. Chloe Cooley and on Jackie Shane, I believe. Right. And, you know, they're not perfect. There's there's definitely some areas where they have to or where I think. Nitpicky historians like you and I and say, well, actually, sure. s- slavery wasn't completely abolished in that year. Slavery still existed in Canada. But what I have noticed is, is in the more recent Heritage Minutes, there does seem to be a more concentrated effort on you know, being a, a little bit more critical of Canada itself. I'd have to rewatch them, but I do think in some of them now, they do say the word racism.
0: Mm, okay. <laughs>
1: But yeah, I, I do think they're improving, and you know they have a minute.
0: Yeah, uh, so with,
1: yeah, I it's only to talk a minute.
0: To, I wanted to talk to you about the the genre of the Heritage yeah. Minute, which I think is interesting, right? It's it's mm-hmm. sort of an interesting project because they're they're one minute of runtime, and they also presume basically no prior knowledge of the topic yeah. cuz potentially just about anybody could be watching this right it could be like mm-hmm. i watched these when i was a kid in the 90s mm-hmm. people who have gone through the school system but maybe not learned history beyond high school or something are watching yeah. these right so i think in some sense there's a strength to that right that you can sort mm-hmm. of you can sort of pick a very specific message and be like we want to communicate to people x right in, in the case of nitro maybe that message is maybe a couple of things maybe maybe this is the sort of like chinese canadian origin story
1: yeah (laughs) or hey chinese people did exist in canada it's not just a super white history
0: yeah and maybe also you're trying to communicate railway work was really exploitative yeah and so in some sense it's there's almost an advantage to only having a minute and being like what are the two or three really big things you want to communicate on the other hand it's I think it's a it's probably a pretty tough job to write these and try to get oh, something across with them.
1: Do,
0: do you think there are any other particular strengths and weaknesses of Heritage Minutes?
1: Yeah, for sure. And you know as as critical as I am of Nitro, and I won't backtrack on what I said about <laughs> Nitro. I I stand by it. But I actually do think there is a lot of value to Heritage Minutes as as a whole as a collective as an idea yeah you know not to reiterate everything you just said but i think they do play a really important role in introducing i'll use the term wider audiences uh, to topics and, and themes in history that they might otherwise be unfamiliar with they meet people where they are they meet people on the media platforms that they already use so you know you know in this in age of the 21st century there's heritage minutes aren't just on tv but Radio, Instagram, and YouTube. So we we I think Heritage Minutes do play a very valuable role in public history, and their focus on you know those quick individual people or events make them memorable, make them human, and make them relatable. And and like I said, the especially the what I'll call the Heritage Minute re- Renaissance, there does seem to be a more concerted effort to focus on non-white figures in history as well. Mm-hmm. And and what I've seen is, you know, not just the token black history heritage minute, not just the token indigenous history minute, but they I think as they're building their catalog and I, and I'm going to be hopeful here, but it does seem that they're trying to go beyond a, a more additive nature of different aspects of history in this place that we now call Canada. So I think in that sense, you know, they they have a value. They open up a conversation that might not be opened before and hopefully, you know, capture the attention of, of some second grade kid who's been shown the minute in their public school classroom to want to wanna find out more, to be interested in, in pushing and asking more questions about Canadian history. So I think they're actually quite valuable that way. From a more meta media studies perspective, we can also look at Heritage Minutes to think about, well, how do we create national memory? Yep. How do we think about national narratives? Uh, the limitations are are still there, and I think we we've talked about a lot of them. And but to, I I think more productive conversation about the limitations on heritage minutes that you know might be connected to some of their strengths is is yes they're one minute long they're sixty seconds, and because we are trying to reach a wider audience and open a conversation and also have very compelling storytelling. To, to make that minute grabby, there, there has to, I shouldn't say there has to be, but there often is a concessions to historical accuracy and detail. Mm-hmm. I, I think there are places to improve on heritage minutes, but you know the the last three that were released, I know they did consult with academic scholars and professors in in Toronto mm-hmm. and other places. but you know, I, I I hope they're going in. I think, you know, I, i''ll I'll be very positive. I think they're going in in a positive. In a positive direction.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think so too. I think if the message of a Heritage Minute is good, then I think that it's a very effective genre mm-hmm. because so many people see them. I think yeah. it, that's really hard to underestimate. So I found this poll from 2012, which is the most recent I could find. With this is, I guess, when they were <laughs> inaug- inaugurating the new series of Heritage Minutes. Yeah. And at the time, about. You know, sixty-three percent of people responding. This is an Ipsos poll. Said they strongly agree that heritage minutes are a good way to teach Canadians about our history. Mm-hmm. And anecdotally, I think that if you talk to people, especially people who like watch live TV and stuff in the '90s, 2000s, and stuff like that, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know if they have the same reach with kids today, but. I think the vast majority of people can remember a few of them, yeah, or at least a couple. I think they're they're very like memorable.
1: How many people know the "I smell burnt toast" line? <laughs> you know.
0: Oh, see, I was talking about these with my girlfriend's parents at Christmas time. I was telling them that we were going to record yeah. this episode, and that's what they kept. They seem to say, "Oh, I remember, I smell burnt toast." Or her mom kept saying that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, or I always remember like the Halifax explosion one. Yes.
1: Uh-huh.
0: Where the guy is trying to desperately telegraph the, yeah, yeah.
1: The, 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 yeah, the the Irish home children one. Right. Yeah. Like we must maintain our Irish names.
0: Which, by the way, my uh supervisor's done some research oh. critical of that particular heritage. Um that's a story for a different time. But I so I think that in general, like they do have a very wide audience Mm -hmm. and viewership people remember them i think frankly 60 seconds is a good amount of time for people to watch them and not tune out yeah so people pay attention yeah i think and people would rather watch a heritage minute than like another pizza pizza ad or something like that
1: for sure
0: (laughs) so and they they tend to be like interesting i think they Mm -hmm. have interesting little stories to them. I I should have mentioned this in my description, but they're not a documentary. They are intended as a dramatic retelling of events. Yeah,
1: Reenactment kind of. Yeah, reenactment,
0: mini Mm -hmm. mini movie. Yeah, so I think that they are useful. I think that the key is determining what sort of story you want to tell. And I think that it does Mm -hmm. seem like those sort of more recent ones are less focused on the national narrative and what pieces go into it, I guess, and more sort of focused on people that live in Canada, but not necessarily in service of that national narrative is my vibe. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: I think, yeah, for sure. I think as well, like, you know, heritage minutes and their limitations in and of themselves aren't necessarily bad things, right? They, they do their best when problems arise, it, it's when those sorts of nationalist stories are the only stories yes being told in Heritage Minutes. And, you know, we talked about reasons for that. We talked about the difficulties of of summarizing an event in a minute. We can also talk about the fact that Historica Canada is in part government funded, which, right. ch- which changes things as well. I, I think we agree. Like I said, I, I think they still are useful. Mm-hmm. But I also wanna add that I think there it's still important to keep pushing and be critical of minutes as well not to you know bash the hard work that the people who created the minutes did i, I think we can read them in you know in some cases in, in good faith but i think the reason why it's important to keep pushing keep being critical keep getting feet giving feedback in some way is because that's how we change content of heritage minutes themselves that's how we make them better right. you know if we don't demand more if we don't demand more non-white heritage minutes if we don't demand for more holistic diverse minutes about chinese immigration then we're not going to get them
0: mm-hmm. so
1: you know i think it i think they're also we can might also think of heritage minutes and the producers of heritage minutes and the public audience as as being in a relationship with with one another and i actually think uh there, there's going to be a new minute being filmed. Don't quote me on this. I was just perusing social media, but I do think there's research being done right now on a I minute mean, about Chinese Canadian veterans. Oh, okay. Yeah, so we are moving beyond just one token, yeah, railroad contribution there.
0: Right, that's good. I was going to ask you just sort of a fun question but if yeah. so if you could create your own heritage minute based on your research yeah what would it it be about what would happen in that heritage minute
1: my goodness so my research <laughs> Again, this speaks to the difficulty of summing up a very complicated event into 60 seconds for a non-specialist audience, because I don't even think I can explain what a paper son or a paper migrant is in 60 seconds. Hmm. But if I were to make a Heritage Minute based on my research, I think it would focus on the paper migration of a Chinese family living in Canada, because, you know, as much as we critique the nation state, the nation state cares about you. So we can't totally ignore it, and and though I don't know what exactly frame by frame the minute would look like, I think the central message that I'd like to get across in the minute we'll we'll call it the the implicit thesis, if you will, is <laughs> I I think I'd like to I think I'd like to make sure that it it would communicate you know the fact that clandestine migration, paper migration, as the state would say, illegal immigration, occurs because of security forces because of policing because of the nation state's impulse to exclude because without exclusion laws without restriction without discrimination in the first place paper family migration as it exists as i understand it as we've seen throughout canadian history migration via pathways that the state considers illegal as it exists in this form could not develop in the way that it did right like if there's no exclusion laws then we don't have the very specific kind of strategies that Chinese migrants use to get around those exclusion laws.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: And, you know, I think that's a really important thing that I'd want to be communicated in my Mm -hmm. heritage minute. Yeah. Because paper migration, the way that I study it, happens as a response to racism, as a response to racist laws. And as I would argue, paper migration, we might think about it as is a reasonable challenge to an unjust law. Right. A racist authority. So I, I don't know how it would look like, but that's. I think those are the two main through lines that I'd like to be communicated in the very short spans of sixty seconds.
0: Right. That sounds like a good idea, Historica Canada. If you're listening, they're probably not listening.
1: Yeah. Please hire me. Co- yeah. Con- contact
0: <laughs> Melanie for a heritage minute contract.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Overall. What's your favorite thing about Nitro? And if you could change something, one thing about it. I know we talked about lots of things. If you could change one thing about it, what would yeah. you like to change?
1: I think my favorite thing about the minute isn't the minute itself per se, but you know, maybe the kind of relationship that I have with the minute and the value that I see in it as a teaching tool hmm. to encourage public audiences and my own students to, to push the envelope of national narratives and the bounds of history. Hmm. So, you know, when I first viewed the Heritage Minute as a as a young a younger person, I was actually really excited. It was the first time I saw myself on screen represented in some sort of way. Now, yeah. I'm not a Chinese male. I myself did not work on the railroad. My great-grandfather worked on the CPR as part of CPR, but, you know, it was the first time I did kind of see any content (laughs) about Chinese people in Canada. Of course, like, you know, it's limited because most people of Chinese heritage and ethnicity today, one, don't necessarily identify as Chinese, but may identify as being from like Toisan or some other regional place. And two, probably don't actually have, you know, blood relation to railroad workers. But, you know, even that kind of like analytical thinking that I'm thinking of, that's what I like about the minute. It encourages me and pushes me to continue to push what the history of Chinese people and Canada can look like. And it's a really good opportunity to show students that they can think critically in their everyday in the media that they ingest and digest. So that's that's what I really like about The Minute. It's It opens that conversation mm-hmm. in the first place. It's a really easy, accessible <laughs> conversation opener. Yeah. If I could change anything about it, I think, just, I don't know how I could do it in this imaginary world, but I think, you know, maybe reframing it a little bit to not portray anti-Chinese racism as a thing of the past. Hmm. Maybe, actually, you know what, maybe instead of jumping 50 years ahead and and the grandfather talking about his past struggles, maybe we gesture towards how exploitation and anti-chinese racism during railroad building is still in effect today and still has consequences for today mm. and then instead of getting a minute that is rather celebratory of the railroad and you know is trying to tell the story about unity and diversity and inclusion then we get a more a nuanced more critical clip that that teaches about how systemic racism actually is
0: that makes sense that would be that would yeah. be a good change. <laughs> yeah melody this has been really great i think i've learned a lot and this has been really interesting do you have any projects or social media pages you'd like to share with the listeners
1: um, so i don't have any projects that are currently out in the ether and exist right now mm-hmm. that are personal to me uh, i've done a couple other podcast interviews. So, you know, you can Google my name, check those out if you really want to. But I I do really want to amplify one Canadian public history, kind of cultural project that I think is a really good thing. It's called the Representation Project. That's representation, but instead of T-I-O-N, it's T-Asian, A-S-I-A-N, Representation Project. And what they do is that they're they're dedicated to amplifying Asian voices, not just in Canada but around the world, uh, amplifying work that different people of Asian heritage. And I think you know, in some cases, that also encompasses people from Pacific Islands as well. It's not just historical content; it's pop culture as well. You know, the the people on that team do really good work, very similar to Lewis to your podcast, actually though. They'll often have really interesting articles taking like this pop cultural phenomena, like you know the book "To All the Boys I've Loved Before" now a Netflix hit, and, and talking about the relationships of Asianness in that in a more critical lens. So, hmm. shout out to the Representation Project if you're listening, which you probably aren't. Hire me too. I think you're really cool.
0: <laughs> <laughs> cool. I'll uh, I'll include a link to that in the in the show description as well. This has been really great. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thanks, Louis. That's all for today's interview. Thank you for listening, and thanks to Melanie for joining me. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we talked about today, check the description for suggestions for further reading. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you get the latest episodes in your feed, and follow the podcast on Facebook and Instagram for historical photos related to episodes, new episode announcements, and more. We're at Off Campus History on both sites. If you want to support the podcast, it really helps me out if you recommend it to someone you know personal recommendations are really valuable for growing the audience. And if you'd like to leave a review for the show on the Apple podcast page, that also helps a lot. If you'd like to send me any comments about this or other episodes, leave me a comment on one of our social media pages or send me an email at offcampushistory@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I'm also happy to hear suggestions for future episode topics and to hear from historians who are interested in appearing on a future episode. Music for the podcast is by Paul B.S. and his novelty Orchestra, and our work for the podcast was made by Nethkaria. Thank you again for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time for some more off-campus history.